these stories are out there in abundance. And if you take them slow and you go at the speed of a walker, you come to understand these things much more intimately than you ever would driving sight to sight. And again, that just points to the power of what can happen if you step out of your own door with the right frame of mind and a desire to kind of put yourself in front of people that you don't necessarily know and see how they'll respond to you. Hey everyone, this is Helene from Coming From The Heart Podcast, an inspirational and motivational podcast about mental health, mindfulness, speaking your truth and never feeling alone. Going out this summer with friends should be really, really fun. You don't want to worry about drink spiking and roofing. That's why I partnered with Nightcap, the drink spiking preventative solution, as seen on Shark Tank. Their cool innovative products slip over the top of a cup or bottle and voila, safety in a second. They got you covered. So definitely check them out with their cool innovative products and great gear for summertime. Please use promo code CFTH for 20% off your purchase. This afternoon, I have the extreme honor and pleasure to introduce and say hello to Neil King Jr., who is the author of American Ramble, A Walk of Memory and Renewal. Neil is a former national political reporter and editor for the Wall Street Journal, and he was deeply involved in the coverage of 9-11 that won the journal the Pulitzer Prize. He has written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, and other publications. American Ramble is his first book, and he is a Colorado native, and he lives in Washington, D.C. And all I can say, Neil, is that I am I am blown away <laughs> to be speaking to you this afternoon. I saw your piece on the Sunday morning. That is a show that resonated in my heartstrings. I watched that with my parents. And when I saw the whole walking piece and the things that, of course, Jane Pauley introduced, I was glued to my screen and I thought I have to meet Neil because his story and my story are so in sync because when I started this podcast, as some of my viewers may or may not know, I would walk for miles and miles. I didn't camp out, but I walked the beaches down here in South Jersey, trying to figure out my life and my trajectory. So Neil, let's hand the mic to you. And thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm mutually boring to be here. It's a lot of fun. So uh, glad we get the chance to talk. Yes, me too. Okay. The question coming out of many thoughts in my mind as I was journaling lots of notes this morning is, I know the why and the how, because that was written up of you going through cancer, going through your own narrative and stories of really making this thought process or this storybook as to what you really wanted to do. But often we think about things in life and they never quite come to fruition. So what exactly gave you that exact moment where you're like, okay, because sometimes a plan just falls through and you're like, you know what? God, it sounds like a really good idea, but maybe I shouldn't really be doing something so crazy like walking. Let's see, you were walking 330 miles, if I'm saying that correctly, mm -hmm. in 25 days. 
about three miles a day and leaving your DC home to New York City in the spring of 2021. Yeah, it was uh, three miles an hour. It was about, on average, it was about 14 miles a day. Some days were much longer than other days in terms of the mileage. But, you know, to your question of kind of how did I make it happen, it's a really good way to start because, you know, the reality is that almost everything that we do that's really meaningful in life is in some ways optional. Like, you don't really need to do that thing. And I think it's very easy for people to psych themselves out, kind of talk themselves out, doubt themselves out of things, particularly if they're kind of weird and a little unusual. And I, one thing this walk really taught me is that there's such value in those things that people kind of scrunch their noses up a bit when you tell them about it. The things that seem a little bit preposterous, a little bit out there, oftentimes those are the richest things to actually grab a hold of, particularly if they've just sprung from your head, from your spirit, whatever, as something that you really want to do. And I think it's so important to value those weird whims and inspirational little moments and allow the room for those things to grow and then to have faith in them and not squash them by second guessing them or doubting them and all that. And, you know, the walk, I walked out the door of my house. I basically put my life on hold. I had decided I wanted to see if there was meaning and value and beauty and a story that told something about our own history, et cetera, between my front door of my house in Washington, D.C. and Central Park in New York. And I put a lot of thought into it. I put a lot of planning. I, I read so much about the land in between. And then I did it. But, you know, even I think a week before, I was still, should I really do this? Does this really make sense? You know, and the vast majority of people, when I mentioned it to them, thought it was a bizarre and weird idea. And yet in the doing of it, it was completely magical and way beyond what I ever would have expected. I love the word magical. Yeah, because it was magical. And speaking of magic, here's the book that yeah. I <laughs> took notes, brought it to the beach. It's probably a little bit dirty, but loved, loved, loved your story. And it's just, again, blowing my mind sitting here speaking to the person who I actually spent many moments reading this. And what came to my mind was the fact that freedom, the freedom to be able to do this and the exhilaration of, of going through the process of actually doing it and achievement. These are the words that really were popping into my head, like back to moments ago when I was saying, we all sometimes think, wow, could I travel Europe? Could I backpack? Could I do this or could I do that? And when I was investigating or doing a little history of who you are and what you're about and all that, you definitely are an explorer. You know, you grew up in Colorado. I mean, I've never been to Colorado, but I've been to California. So those gorgeous mountains. And it seems like you're the type of person, and you can comment on this, that never quite wanted to sit still. Based on the jobs that you had, based the fact that you had this inner spark, this drive to want to do something a little bit different. So going back to your family and people that would be like, are you crazy? 
the people that say, are you crazy? Or the people that said to me when I was starting the podcast, how are you going to do a podcast? You don't know anything about mental health. I go, I'll learn. I'll figure it out. So we're different. I would say we're creatives. What's your thoughts on that? You know, when it comes back, you mentioned the word freedom, and I point this out in the book, but, you know, we all talk about, oh, we all should have our own freedom of choice to choose to do that or choose to do that. But what I really argue is that freedom itself is a choice, and you can either choose to be free, which is to really kind of live up to your own instincts and follow the calls that come to you, or you can not, and you can kind of live by the dictates and the opinions and the side looks of other people and find that your life is kind of formulated by your fear of being doubted or questioned or made fun of, I guess. And it's a lot of it is just a matter of faith, right? And yeah, I've done a lot of things, traveled to a lot of strange places, been pretty risk averse and stuck myself out into a lot of places, which I understand is not everybody's thing. But, you know, it's funny with this walk, and now that I've done a lot of events, since the book came out, I often get the question, great, Neil, it's good that you did this walk. I mean, you know, you're a middle aged man, white man, but this or that kind of person couldn't do the walk. And I mean, I understand the point. But I, I think a lot of us kind of restrain ourselves by setting these sort of limitations and presuming certain bad outcomes in advance of even going to do the thing. Well, what if I did that and I failed? Or what if I did that and I got hurt? Or what if, you know, and I, there too, I think that's a matter of the freedom that you grant yourself, freedom from kind of advanced anxiety and and kind of reaching the conclusion that something is sure to go wrong. You know, people restrain their entire lives by fearing that something could go wrong. And I've kind of done my best to reject that. What I'm thinking as you're speaking is risk taker. Yeah. Yeah. You're the guy that would be <laughs> jumping off the cliff and everybody else would be thinking about it. You mentioned, you know, I could see it in your face. Okay. Maybe you were in parts of the world that were a little bit crazy. If you want to just comment on that a little bit, tell us. Well, I mean, it is the case that I, you know, right when I got out of high school, I traveled to Europe and kind of bummed all around and, when I was in the middle of college, I took a, basically two years off. I traveled around the world, and I didn't have a lot of money, and I was in a lot of weird parts of the world, and, you know, was very exposed as a solo traveler. You know, I've traveled all over Mexico and Central America on my own, hitchhiking and taking buses and stuff like that. And as a reporter, I went to war zones and a lot of other, you know, weird environments where I didn't speak the language, et cetera. So I'm pretty equipped for this kind of thing. But on the other hand, I walked out my door, went up through Northern Maryland, went across the state of Pennsylvania, went close to where you are through Southern right. New Jersey, walked up to, and so, you know, this is not Iraq or Afghanistan, right? So, <laughs> you know, it's not like it's filled with a lot of scary stuff. Nothing scary happened to me. So again, I, I argue that probably I would say most of your listeners or a good portion of them could do this easily, what I did. So it's not like it's some super risky or scary thing. Well, let's talk about the risk factor, or let's talk about resiliency, because that's what pops into my head too. You know, as a young person, you traveled and did all these things. 
What were you like as a young child, a teenager, before you maybe were hitchhiking around? Were you a little bit of a risk taker there? Is this in the DNA? Is this like a family thing? Is this a, a Neil thing as far as taking the risk? You know, it's interesting because there are many forms of risk. And when it comes to the guy that's going to go off the super high jump while skiing and do a backflip or jump off some crazy high cliff into some small body of water in a river or whatever, I knew way more people that were way more adept and likely to do that than I was. On the other hand, the kind of people that are willing to take risks where they're taking a kind of a gamble on strangers and will they be received in the right fashion? Will people do them harm? The willingness to kind of throw yourself into different societies, different environments among different people that you don't feel immediately comfortable with that form of risk I've always had in abundance, a willingness to take that kind of risk. And I don't know where that comes from exactly. It's that kind of sense. And I talk a lot about it in the book of, you know, where it is that we belong. And I argue that, you know, in a time when we're talking about privilege and who has certain privileges, the privilege of belonging, of feeling that you belong kind of wherever you go is really the ultimate privilege. It's also, on the other hand, a privilege that we grant one another, a welcoming in you know, ness, right? And, you know, that was what I kind of pushed on in this walk was that sense of where do any of us belong? And could I kind of insinuate myself into weird environments and, and strike up conversations with people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I look at you as an explorer, even from the time you were a young child and teenage into adulthood. And now, so that part of you it's almost like it seemed that it was not that unnormal, that it wouldn't seem out of the norm, that you would, you being this person that had these all these different types of experience to walk out of your house in DC and head for Manhattan. I mean, so people that really knew you or know you would probably say, well, that's not something that you know we're surprised about. Let's talk about your family. Let's talk about, because I'm thinking about my family. If I was like, you know what, I'm gonna see you in like 25 days. Maybe I'll text you or I'll call, maybe. <laughs> what was your wife's reaction? I know your wife is a huge fan, advocate of everything in your life. You went through cancer and you went through, I believe, Lyme's disease, if I'm saying yeah. this correctly. Oh, that yeah. That affected your vocals and your kids and your daughters. Like, what was their whole perspective of this? They weren't terribly surprised. They thought it was great by and large. They were a little like, huh, what? But, you know, there wasn't a lot of apprehension that I was going to get hurt. I wasn't, you know, turning on my tracker on my phone so that I could be tracked at all times in case I was kidnapped or something. I mean, then they were quite enthused, and especially as the time to do it grew near. And, you know, I'd really laid out the planning and, and the kind of the why of it became a little more, more obvious. They were very supportive. You know, my mom, who's now in her 80s, she was a little bit more mom-like. You know, it's easy to jump to some conclusions about what might happen and the exposure and the risks and stuff like that. So especially people who aren't out in the world a lot, I think they impute more risk than I think is logical. But all the, by and large, I had a lot of support from my family. I know. And I, and you mentioned also in the book about your brother was cheering you on to do this type of thing. So how long do you think you were talking about it? So the actual execution of when you really did it, I want to get into like the pandemic and all the 
insanity that was going on in that space as you were about to walk out the door. So what, what do you think time frame? Well, I mean, the thing is, I first thought of this idea, I, gosh, I wonder if I just walked out my door, walked to New York, what that would be like. I mean, that was a thought that struck me years ago, and it it stuck. And again, going back to talking to listeners, who, and I've gotten a lot of emails from people, oh, I read your book, it's made me finally really want to get off my butt or whatever and do this trans-American bike ride, or it's a kind of like seize the moment, there's only so much time. It's easy to nurture these ideas. We all have little things that are rattled around in our head. And this was just a funny little thing that had rattled around in my head. And so I then seriously planned it for the end of March of 2020. Of course, the end of March of 2020 was an unraveling moment for everybody on earth, basically. So I had to put it off. So I had another year. So to that extent, I had been talking about it before I set out for probably two years because that big year-long delay, um, which was a good delay, by the way, it made the walk so much more meaningful and so much more interesting because of what we'd all been through with COVID and everything else. Exactly. I guess think, thinks and thoughts now of mine are, what did you really expect to find? We, we talked about belonging. The world, our country was completely upside down. Things were just as bad as it possibly could. And also, I just wanted to parallel to what you personally were going through. You had just gone through cancer treatment and going through cancer. So it was like you were dealing with your own personal anguish and so forth. And then the thought of like this momentum. I'm, 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 the word momentum is kind of going through my head. The momentum of what you had dealt with. The momentum of the insanity, the political unrest, January 6th, all this stuff. It's funny when you read stuff and you're like, yeah, I kind of lived through that. We, we, we know about that. Again, back to the word momentum, it's sort of like this push. I look at it like almost like this push to push you out the door. What's your feeling on that? I mean, it is. You say momentum. I mean, I talk in the book about seizing your moment, that we all have these little fissures or seams, as I call them, in our lives. And there's a value in taking advantage of those little openings. I mean, some of them might be bad openings. In my case, it was coming off of a fight with a cancer and saying, okay, I've been granted more time. Let me do something with this moment. You know, somebody might get a, a divorce or, or even lose their job or come out of the army or graduate from college or, you know, lose their job. And I mean, those may seem weird moments to set off on a walk, but I think it is actually at those moments that it's the best time to do that. I mean, you were talking about taking long walks on the beach to figure out your next move. I mean, to me, this was, I go out my door, I thought a lot about it in advance, I'd done a lot of preparation. My main mission was to just pay attention, still my mind in some ways. I know this podcast is partly about mindfulness, to just be mindful of the day and, you know, to think about our history as a country, the story of the land in between these two places, and about my own time here on Earth. And, you know, to that extent, it was really one of the best months of my life, because that's kind of all I did for those 26 days, was walk, think, observe as spring unfold, look at the birds, all those things. And, you know, I know this is in part about mental health and things. I mean, the mental health value of giving yourself a stretch of time to walk, think, quiet your mind, not fill it with 
other stuff is just invaluable. And I really urge people to do that because it cleanses your mind. I talk about, you know, memory and renewal as the subtitle of my book, but it does renew you in ways that are really meaningful. And I, I, I've talked to lots of people who have taken walking trips, you know, in Spain and France and Italy. It's a huge thing going on now. And the people that do those come away in a lot of ways transformed. Oh my God, absolutely. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about my own personal journey, walking out my door for hours during the pandemic and just sort of getting lost in the moment. And I was dealing with vertigo and trying to figure out my own trajectory of my own life. And I left right before the pandemic. I was working as a professor, grad school and just changing up. But the walking part, I want to stress that to everybody, the walking part, it's rejuvenating. It cleanses you in a way, nature, birds down at the shore. That's my most favorite space to look out at the ocean as I did, to figure this out as you were looking at nature. And what I was mesmerized at the beginning of the book is you started out in Washington, DC, and there's the Capitol behind you and all the insanity. And I look at it as like noise, like all this noise going on. But yet here you were in your silent silo going along in your journey to wherever it was going to take you. Clearly you had mapped out, you made, made arrangements. It wasn't like you were completely just like winging it. The places that you stayed, like what I want to get and dive into a little bit in this conversation is like all these different places you stayed, you're walking along roads. People probably thought that you were to an extent, if I use this word homeless, that you didn't have a place to go walking along different highways and streams, because that's our perspective of seeing someone just walking along and not really understanding their exact journey of where they're going. And the narrative that you were talking about, the different neighborhoods, and I actually went to University of Maryland, College Park, so I do know a little bit of that area. I was excited when you were mentioning some of these places. I was like, oh, I know where that is. And the driveways and the people's interaction. And what I really want to hammer, too, is the belonging part. As you are a white man walking through these neighborhoods, if you were a Black man walking through this neighborhood, what would that have felt like? No, I mean, those are all really interesting points. I mean, obviously, it would have been a profoundly different experience had I been a Black man doing the walk. I mean, this is a series of experiences that are all based on first impressions. And some people can have botched up, dumb first impressions or make bad judgments. And with a few exceptions, I was generally received quite well and openly. And the kind of vagabond aspect of walking down a road, you know, mind you, I was not on the Appalachian Trail. I was not um, in a place where hikers were. I, as far as I know, was doing a walk along these roads in a way that perhaps nobody else had kind of taken this route, like, you know, kind of ever in that same fashion. But, you know, that also gave it an element where people really responded to it when they honed in and focused on what it was I was doing, because they kind of understood it as a as a pilgrimage, as a mission. And they liked that. And they liked that I was, I'd sort of stepped out of routine, average, normal, doing the rounds time. And I was in sort of a my own special time zone in a way. You know, so for the most part, I got a lot of kindness and a lot of welcome from people. Actually, in some cases, sort of extreme acts of welcome. You know, what's extraordinary People might all have their own struggles with making new friends or expanding their own horizons. I mean, I made, I don't know, probably 16 
ongoing friendships in the span of 26 days, people that I will be in touch with, I'm confident, a year or two years, three years from now, that I've seen a bunch of times since the book come out. And again, that just points to the power of what can happen if you step out of your own door with the right frame of mind and a desire to kind of put yourself in front of people that you don't necessarily know and see how they'll respond to you. No, absolutely. Give us a little bit of the journey for people that are not as familiar with the books. So your your path. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, some people might not even be familiar that much with the land, lay of the land there anyway, but I went straight north of uh, Washington. I skipped Baltimore. I went up to York, Pennsylvania, so straight north of D.C., basically. I then cut straight across the Susquehanna River into Lancaster County, which is known to many people for its Amish and Mennonite populations. I then kept basically going east and kind of made my way through Valley Forge, which is a famous, you know, Revolutionary War site, famous winter of 1777. Then I made my way into Philadelphia, which was really the only city that I went through outside of New York. I wanted to go through some places just north of Philadelphia. So I was up in Doylestown. I went over to New Hope, which is along the Delaware River. I walked down the Delaware and went across where George Washington did, you know, in that Christmas 1776 famous crossing. I went up to Princeton and then cut across that corner of New Jersey and went under the Jersey Turnpike, which was a big moment in Cranberry exit 8A off the Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> and then I cut, I cut up through New Brunswick, East Brunswick, and made my way to Perth Amboy across to Staten Island. I walked the length of Staten Island. And then I went back into Jersey, into Bayonne, up to Jersey City, and then I got somebody to take me across on a boat to Manhattan. And then I walked, uh, you know, half the length of Manhattan up to Central Park and called it a trip. Amazing. Fantastic. You hit all the places that I lived. (laughs) (laughs) East Brunswick. And I was laughing in the book. I'm like, Turnpike, all these places, of course, because I'm East Coast, I know exactly what you were doing. What surprised you, if anything, about the walk? I mean, you talked about belonging. You talked about the communities that were really approachable. I do remember there was one part where someone, if it was in Bethesda, I don't know if I'm sure if I'm right, the guy with the with the water, he wouldn't give oh, you the yeah. water. Yeah, tell me a little bit about what happened with that. Well, I mean, it's funny. That sticks in like everybody's minds. And it was just a funny, yeah, I was walking through this very affluent suburb that was newly created with all these ridiculously overly large houses and i'd run out of water and there was a young guy in his early 30s outside of his probably his parents house today to be honest and he had his earbuds in and and he i said hey can i ask you a question he pulled his earbuds out and i said can do you know where i can get some water and he gave me these like bizarre complicated directions for how i could walk two miles in the opposite direction to find a convenience store and I was just kind of like, hmm, okay, all right, great. You know, considering obviously he had a lot of water in his house, right? So I was like, okay, whatever. And I kind of kept walking. And then he's like, oh, by the way, I would be careful if I were you. And I was like, be careful of what? And he said, oh, people in my neighborhood might wonder what you're doing. And we got into a whole discussion about hospitality and offering, you know, a hand to people. And it was a strange thing. And he never kind of clicked in his mind that all he had to do is take my water bottle and fill it out of his hose, right? And so it was just thick-headedness as much as anything. And that kind of thing is out there, you know. 
No, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's funny. It stood out for obviously a lot of people reading the book and back to the belonging and back to the communities where they were so giving and they wanted you to be part of so much what's going on. Let's talk a little bit about history because gosh, I learned a lot in your book. I'm like, what was that again? Okay, I got to go back and check that history out. I'm a little, I mean, I, let me get to the part. Let me let me look at my notes. We're talking about, well, the Mennonites. I was really interested in that in Lancaster County. Some stuff about Benjamin Franklin. Want to elaborate a little bit on some of the history that I'm botching right now? I'm trying well, to- no, you're not botching anything. You know, I mean, I looked at it as a walk through these layers of our own past. And so much of this stuff is, physically there to be looked at and examined and thought about. I mean, the advent, for instance, of the railroad was one of these huge epical moments in America, sorry, in world history, human history, where for millennia, we had basically moved either at the speed of foot or of horse. And horses aren't that wildly faster than a human. And then all of a sudden, boom, along comes a steam engine, a train. Everything was transformed in the early 1830s. So I walked up some rail beds, and including one that was one of the earliest train rail beds made in the United States. And, you know, that was an interesting thing to examine, to think about, of course, of the labor that's put into things like that, the canals that I walked along. And, you know, there was a lot of the, we've been involved in a big debate lately, what statues should be standing, what statues should be torn down, who deserves to be honored, who doesn't, who decides who we honor in the first place, that is a very active conversation. And I was sort of walking through that too. I also wanted to go out of my way to recognize and even talk about some great people who deserve statues who we've forgotten completely. And there are a lot of really courageous, amazing people who are not household names. So, you know, I didn't want this to be a academic, heavy, you know, kind mm-hmm. of, you know, history slog but more just sort of touching on these things and really making clear to people that this story, these stories are out there in abundance. And if you take them slow and you go at the speed of a walker, you come to understand these things much more intimately than you ever would driving sight to sight. Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that you're a story chaser? Because I'm a story chaser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, I, oh my God, I've got to go there, you know? Yeah. So again, is that for everyone? I don't think so. Is that something that some people have more of than others? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And what about the lost stories? Like that's the thing too, like stories that were just never told. I think you were at a cemetery speaking to a woman. I'm trying to remember what her name was. Yeah, Samantha Dorm. Yeah, that was fascinating because that's an ongoing thing all over the country where Black Americans, there were a lot of them were buried in Potter cemeteries without any gravestones and all. There was a whole, you know, up until the early 1900s, there was a lot of just Black-only cemeteries and a lot of them that have been very badly looked after and, you know, where the gravestones have begun to sort of sink into the earth. And she was involved in a restoration project and a remembering project. And you know, Samantha and I have remained very much in touch. I've been up there a bunch. She was even in that CBS Sunday morning piece. You know, that was, again, about giving, in this case, the dead their due and her own kind of amazement and finding out that there were all these really illustrious people who had been buried there that people had fought, forgotten about entirely and many members of her own family that were buried there that she didn't even know about. Amazing, Yeah. As I said, it was it was a, it was a history, but yet not to the extent of you were saying. It wasn't like I was overloaded with 
you know, certain things, obviously the Mason Dixon line. I thought that was so interesting about that different uh, historians that maybe I emulated and thought, well, maybe I don't know if I'm emulating or thinking so high of these people anymore. You know, not throwing Benjamin Franklin under the bus, but, you know, not maybe the nicest in a lot of spaces because what we learn, and I'm a teacher, I was, I'm a professor, what you learn in school often is not what it was and how we are taught history. And that's based on the state you live, depends upon the curriculum that is taught. So to actually go out as you did and explore and feel and touch is mesmerizing. It's absolutely mesmerizing. I just, I mean, I love it. Also what I was thinking about in your journey, I can't help myself, is Forrest Gump. Of course I gotta, yeah, of course. you know, I don't know. Of course, Forrest Gump and The Road Less Traveled by Robert Frost that, you know, I mean, people throw that at you often about that as well, if you want to just comment. Well, there, there are a lot of different historical allusions. I mean, yeah, my doctor was joking, calling me Forrest. And, you know, and I talk a fair bit in the book about the history of walking and the connection between walking and, and art and philosophy and how so many of the kind of biggest thinkers of um, recent centuries have have really relied on thoughts that have come to them while walking. Einstein was a huge walker. I mean, there's a whole bunch of composers and philosophers and mathematicians, all kinds of people that have found breakthroughs, really, and great meaning and going out. And, you know, it's the thing about it is that it does just clear your mind. And it takes sometimes hours upon hours to kind of get to a place in your mind that you would never have gotten to in any other way. But it's a lot of it, particularly now when we talk about, you know, mental health and well-being is just giving our time, ourselves time to not be inundated by inputs from fake inputs, really, the phone-based, screen-based inputs. And, you know, there's an incredibly rich, extraordinary world out there that you don't need a lot of augmentation to see what's amazing about it. And I was walking through one of the most trampled, sort of ordinary, already been there, done that parts of the country. But pretty much every day I found things that were astonishing to me and even astonishing to people who lived around there that weren't aware of those things. So it's all out there. You know, you talk about explorer. I mean, you can be an explorer in your own backyard, basically, right? It's all about just attentiveness. I think that's what the pandemic has ta had taught us. I think so. Has taught You're right. I, I agree. Because your environment, you were stuck in your environment. You couldn't go anywhere as I was exploring the beach because that was down the street from where I live. So we had a new appreciation of that. And that was good enough. And I'm just thinking about as you're traveling, your phone. I mean, you, did you put your phone to the side for your walking spaces? I mean, and when you got to where you needed to go, check in with your wife. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm eating, I'm sleeping wherever I'm sleeping. You made arrangements before. You obviously knew where you were going to go. You needed to have a place to sleep that night. I'm just thinking about bad weather, animals, bears, some, you know, wildlife attacking you besides crazy people. Were you concerned about that a little bit? Um, some, but I was always kind of aware that my the biggest danger I faced was just a distracted driver that was going to weave off the road because I'm walking along roads most of the time. You know, I did, of course, use my phone mainly for a navigation. I used it for photos. I use it for videos. I use it for recording my thoughts because I spoke into it a lot as I went. That was the way I took most of my notes. I kind of wrote portions of the book in a way by 
talking into my phone. So, you know, I'm not some phone hater person. I mean, I think they're extraordinary things, but I also think you can get devoured by them and kind of lose your way inside this thing in your hand and kind of miss what's happening, right? And there's just great joy to be had out there by just giving that up, putting putting it aside and kind of just letting yourself to seep into what it is that you're walking through and just having that be your source of inspiration. Yeah, definitely beautifully said. I agree. I believe we're all plugged in. Younger generations worse. Sometimes older generations not the best either. You know, everyone's on their phone. You go to a major city, everyone's plugged in. A couple of things I'm thinking as well. What was your feeling? You went through, you went over the Bayonne Bridge, which I've gone over many times, and you see this Manhattan staring at you. And obviously the title of your book, Ramble, you know, I know that of course Jane Pauley gave obviously a definition. Ramble is a walk for pleasure. I'm reading here, typically without a definite route. But I think you definitely had a route of some sort. You weren't winging it. You know, you're here you are, you come out of your wooded area, streams over the bridge and Manhattan. I mean, Manhattan is pretty, you know, amazing to just stare at the glory of the buildings. What were you thinking in that second? I mean, um, I, as you know, having read the book, there's these various moments when I have these kind of strange, intoxicating, kind of out of nowhere moments of extreme joy. I, I rapture, I talk, I kind of describe them. And they grew, basically. They, they, it was kind of a additive thing, which again, I think was because of the additive nature of just the continuing to be on this walk and kind of cleansing of my mind and the simplification of what it was I was doing. And so, you know, that was then, next to last day, basically, and I was coming over the bridge, and I guess the common expression was I was sort of blown away by the sudden view of Manhattan, and I it just hit me like a kind of wave of joy and exhilaration, and a lot of it was because for 25 days at that point, I'd been walking to reach this place, and all of a sudden there was, I was seeing it, I hadn't quite anticipated that, but it was also beholding this thing that we collectively have built over the centuries that is a thing of real beauty and you know something that had been through so much through covid and yet when you see it from that distance and with all of its sort of strength and power you see that kind of resilience that places like new york have and that they are kind of a beacon of hope for all of us because they've gone through a lot our cities have gone through a lot the country's gone through a lot and they move on and they recover and that that was a big part of my thinking too amazing amazing endorphins i'm thinking when you were yes. saying these moments just oh my god i also think you you got the adrenaline going you're walking and you continuously keep doing it so your body's on a continuum is getting these adrenaline boosts of so forth and so forth let me say this america's gone through a lot of a lot of crap obviously when you started the journey to the end of the journey are you feeling different about this country? I mean, I know you comment in many interviews, but to the core of like, America's resilient, pandemic and so forth. But what is your real thinking about where this country is coming from or where it's going, shall I say? You started in DC and you landed in Manhattan. I think the main thing I would say is that I would just caution people from creating a view of the country or the world based entirely on kind of the once, twice, or three times removed abstractions of what they're being fed on 
whatever their chosen television network is or what they're hearing constantly on the radio or what they're seeing on their Facebook feeds. And so there is a world out there. And the more that you are immersed in that world and not the world that's one or two steps away from that, that you're interacting with people that aren't your next door neighbor or aren't in your political you know, tribe or in your little sports team or or whatever, and you're stepping outside of your zone, the more you're grounding your sense in some sort of shared place and a kind of common ground. And, you know, my experience over those 26 days, I'm not arguing that it was proof of something in its own right, but was extremely positive, was morally enriching. I met a lot of strangers who were fascinating, and they weren't the same political beings as I might be, but there's much more in life than just obsessing over people's politics. And there's a lot to be concerned about now in America. I share concerns of a whole bunch that other people would share. But on the other hand, the walk really showed me that there's a extremely wholesome, very particular, really rich sort of substructure out there that you can go and see and walk through and examine up close. And there's the richness in our story that is um, otherwise not being reflected in the daily news that troubles us. Absolutely. And also media, as we know, being that you were in the media space, a lot of sensationalism of yeah. what really absolutely happens specifically during that space and time and COVID and what was going on. I shut off my TVs and I would look selectively because like so many people, because for me, it was really damaging, the mental health aspect of that. But to be able to go out and really interface with people. And I, I always would say this when I was teaching my international grad students in different countries around the world, the people in the countries are amazing. Yeah. They're the amazing, they're, they're the magical stuff back to the beginning of this conversation. Often it's the government that is not so much and that people attach so much to that. I mean, the election time was the insanity of what everyone was experiencing, and it just made us all feel hopeless. Mm. But I think your walk and your journey has really brought it home to feel positive that there is hope out there, that we should respect and be kind. And kindness, that was definitely something that I was thinking throughout your book. People are really kind. You just have to experience the kindness. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are certain very basic virtues that are so important. And, you know, some would argue that they're not exactly in a growth mode right now, that these are sort of declining virtues. But yeah, respect, gentleness, kindness, patience, you know, all these kind of Cub Scout kind of things almost. But yeah, those are incredibly important. And I was granted those as I went and I reciprocated and kind of the whole of it was really a sort of an exercise in attempting to exhibit those kind of basic virtues. Amazing. What's next, Neil? Yeah. Another book. Yeah, I have a lot of different, I mean, I'm thinking about doing a next book that would be more complicated, but in a sort of similar vein, but a variety of different explorations, maybe a little bit more into some of the kind of darker sides of our own past, but I, I need to formulate it. I'm still in the process. And I, I do think there's great value in the kind of immersive, uh, look at it up close, take it slowly, and kind of bring in some of the scholarship into the experience and kind of try to bring it alive by the being there part of it, you know? So no, I want to do more of that. 
Amazing. Well, I can't wait. I have to ask this, the 9-11 article for the Wall Street Journal that, that won the Pulitzer Prize, were you surprised that it got to that level to be a Pulitzer Prize? Did you want to just comment a little bit about what the article exactly pertained to? I mean, you know, that was just a cataclysmic day for everybody in the country. And, you know, we were a New York-based paper. The office was right next to the World Trade Center. All kinds of my colleagues saw, you know, all the horrors of people jumping out of the building and every other thing, buildings. And I was in Washington, you know, that we had our own calamities there with the Pentagon being struck and all of that. And I was one of two terrorism reporters at the Wall Street Journal at that time. Me and my colleague had to write the main story at the top of the paper about who we thought did it and who everyone thought did it to the authorities that did it, what had happened, what this meant. And it was a whole package of stories that were done that day. By the way, when our office in New York had been completely abandoned because we had to get out of it because it had been partially destroyed. So it was a, a day of national trauma, uh, doing a lot of work under extraordinary circumstances. So that was definitely part of why we collectively won the Pulitzer for that whole coverage. Yeah. I mean, for our young viewers out there, I experienced with my husband being, being down on in that space at Wall Street. Yes. Yeah. So anyone who experienced that and for people that look at it as history, two different perspectives, that's the word. Neil, you have been amazing. Mm -hmm. I just, again, I'm on cloud nine, cloud 10, whatever clouds are out there, <laughs> we had an opportunity to speak on the mental health space of your journey. I have a feeling just looking at you, you're ready to take on <laughs> what other, you know, book or Netflix or whatever else is coming your way. Again, I am so happy to have met you. And I feel like this is a friendship that will be a continuum for a while. Right. And you could let everybody know, I'm going to put off, of course, in the description where they can find you if they want to connect to you. What would be the best place for that? You know, the best place is my own website, which is Neil King, Jr. Neil King Jr.com. And there's all about the book and all kinds of stuff. There's a trailer and, and, and there's a way to reach me by email there too. For everybody out there, buy this book. You'll love it. Neil, you're awesome. Thank you so much for your time and this interview. And we'll definitely catch up soon. All right, Helene. Okay. Thank you very much. Take care. It's great. Please check out my episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and weekly Instagram Lives where I am honored with talented, exceptional guests. Can't wait to see you all there.